Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here. If you're joining us online, special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Brendan, as, as Dave mentioned, and as has been mentioned as well, things are shifting. So we have a number of things coming up in the life of our church. Uh, Pastor Jeremy is doing a Romans Bible study starting on Friday, September 15th, a 13-week course meeting right here from 7 to 9. You can sign up there. Youth kicks off on the 13th on a Wednesday, our season opener. We have a men's event uh, on September 19th, the Boys Brews and Bibles at Streetcar uh, Brewing. Uh, Grief Share is kicking off on September 21st. Lamplighters is on September 25th, and we're having a worship night with Pastor Olivier on Friday, September 29th. In other words, lots is going on. And so we encourage you to check out our website and um, come check out our, our things and come be joined in the body of our church uh, in, in our family. Looking forward to what this fall has to offer. Now, one of the f- first movies that I ever saw was the movie Annie. It was the one made in 1982, and I saw it a bunch of times because I didn't have a TV in my house, and it was one of the only movies that my grandparents had. It was either Annie or The Land Before Time. So I watched it lots. Annie's the story about this spunky, lovable orphan girl living under the harsh rule of a woman who runs the orphanage. The story takes place in the Great Depression, and Annie's future doesn't look like there's any hope until one day, A local billionaire is encouraged by his secretary to take in an orphan for a week to improve his public image. Now, of course, the secretary's name is Grace, and of course, Annie is the one who is chosen. But when she arrives at the mansion, billionaire Warbucks is not at all impressed with Annie. But, of course, as the story goes, he comes to adore her. He loves her, and he takes on special responsibility for her, and he tries to find her parents. We find out in the movie that her parents had died in a fire when she was a baby. And so in the end, Warbucks adopts Annie as his own. It's a true story of rag, well not a true story, it's a story of rags to riches. Someone of immense power and privilege begins a relationship with her and adopts her as his own, changing her life completely. It's a touching story, and in a sense, it's a metaphor for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to us. He calls us into a relationship with him. He loves us, adopts us, and he gives us an inheritance that will change our lives and our destinies forever. And this is what Jesus does for our character today. He takes a young man, and he brings him into his inner circle, loves him, guides him, and changes the course of his life. This morning's message will be the last in our summer series on New Testament characters. We've taken a look at the lives of a number of different carriers, and we've gleaned wisdom and life lessons from them. And for our final one, we will take a man who is prolific, who is loved. He's known to Jesus as the son of thunder. He's known to the early church as the elder, and later as the apostle of love. He wrote five of the New Testament books. We have John the Apostle. Last year, Marvel came out with a new Thor movie entitled Thor, Love and Thunder, which gave me some inspiration for the name of this message. We have John, Love and Glory. So before Jesus called John, he and his older brother James were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They had a partnership with Peter in some way. John was also likely the cousin of Jesus on his mother's side. So he would have grown up watching and looking to Jesus, knowing that there was something special about his older cousin. 
And so when Jesus called him, it was an easy decision to leave his nets behind and to follow him. Early on, Jesus gives John a nickname. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus appoints his 12 disciples. First, in verse 16, he appoints Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and then James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To him, he gave the name Sons of Thunder. I love that Jesus gives his disciples nicknames. Uh, It seems in some sense classic guy banter and some fun. And Sons of Thunder, that's a better nickname than I ever got. But I wonder, what did they do to earn that nickname? Mark 3 is actually the only place in the New Testament where it's mentioned. But in Luke chapter 9, perhaps we get a sense of why Jesus may have given them this nickname. So Jesus and his disciples, they were headed back to Jerusalem from Galilee, and they were headed through Samaria. Now, Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along. They had a long history of prejudice towards one another. To the Jews, Samaritans were half-breeds and idolaters, and they avoided them at all costs, and here the Samaritans returned the favor. When they found out that Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem, they refused to welcome Jesus and his disciples. So... When James and John saw this, their rabbi, the son of God being rejected, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Sons of thunder? Maybe. This is such a fascinating interaction, is it not? Like, I feel like this is something that my boys would come up with in their free play. I throw ice at you. No, I rain down fire on you. But the interesting thing is, they don't ask Jesus to do it. They ask him if, they want, if he wants them to do it. They think that they're actually able to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. Perhaps they thought if Jesus had given them power over the demonic and the ability to heal, that he also would give them the power to destroy. Perhaps this happens right after Jesus' transfiguration. They saw Elijah. They thought maybe they were now going in the power of Elijah and they should destroy those opposed to Jesus. But Jesus rebukes them. He's starting a different kind of revolution, a revolution that John gets a front row seat to all that Jesus did and said. Can you imagine the Jewish people? They hadn't heard a word from God in 400 years, and here in front of John's eyes, people are being freed from demonic oppression, leprous skin turning healthy skin, food being multiplied, forces of nature being told what to do, deformed hands being made new, right in front of his face. And here's the most amazing part. John doesn't just get an eyewitness to this view, but he's welcomed into a deep friendship with Jesus. It's not just about the miracles and the teaching and the work that John would do later on, but it's about a friendship with God, a right relationship with the Creator. It's about the healing of our rebellious hearts, making them soft towards God. It's about receiving the love and grace of our Heavenly Father. It's like being adopted by the billionaire Warbucks, but way, way better. In John 15, 14, uh, Jesus says an astonishing thing. And he says this to his disciples at the final supper. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. What is his command? To love others. Which sounds simple enough, but if I've learned anything from world history and from parenting from the last eight years, loving one another is actually incredibly difficult. We need God's help. Jesus goes on to say, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. 
I have made known to you. Friendship with Jesus. This is glorious. And what the Gospel of John does, beyond the other biographies of Jesus, is refer to John as the beloved disciple. Jesus has his core of guys, his 12 main disciples, and then he's got his core of three, Peter and the Sons of Thunder, and then he has his one, his closest friend. It's John the Beloved. There's five times in John's Gospel where John is referred to as the one Jesus loved. And the first time is in John chapter 13. This is when Jesus is at, again at the table and he says that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And after this, in 1323, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them Jesus meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? For this meal, they would likely be laying down on their left elbow, able to reach with their right arm the food on the table. So this very famous depiction is not quite accurate. John would be lying in front of Jesus. Clearly, they're physically close. But when John leans his head back, it would touch Jesus' chest. It's the picture the text gives us of intimate friendship. Scholar N.T. Wright says, Jesus had, as we say, a special affection for John, a soft spot. The others didn't resent it, perhaps because he was, after all, only a lad, likely the youngest disciple. So close was their relationship that he was able to ask Jesus the questions the others all wanted to. John could whisper to Jesus and hear what was whispered back. It is one of the great pictures of friendship in all of literature. John is the beloved disciple. But what does this have to do with us? Well, I want to suggest a deep friendship with Jesus is possible today. No, we can't recline next to him at a table, but Jesus is alive and well, sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and by the Holy Spirit, we can draw close to him. And Jesus promises never to abandon those who believe in him. So how do we cultivate a friendship with Jesus? Well, there's some classic answers that maybe feel a bit cliche, but if we don't do them, our friendship with Jesus is unlikely to grow. This is time in the Bible and in prayer. And look, you cannot have ice cream without cream and sugar, am I right? So likely, you can't have a deep relationship with Jesus without knowing his word or without talking to him. Within prayer, there's lots of different things you can do. Confession, sharing your thoughts, your dreams, sharing your burdens, your worries, your requests. Gratitude and thankfulness are key. Take time to listen to God. He speaks but we have to be quiet and still in order to hear him. Second, other ways to cultivate a friendship is through faith-based community. Do you have friends that encourage you in your faith? This is so, so important. It's also why we as a church are big believers in small groups, which are a midweek Bible study where you cultivate spiritual friendships with others in our church and you share your lives together. And I want to say, if you're not a part of a small group, I encourage you to go to Group Link on Tuesday, September 7th at 7 p.m. You need to register for this online. Group Link gets you connected with the different small or with a small group. Third, friendship with Jesus. It's our obedience to Christ. It's going to be pretty hard. <laughs> Always obedience. It's going to be pretty hard to have a friendship with someone if you don't do anything they ask you. Think for a moment about your own friends. One of the key ways to find out who your true friends are 
are when you move. Who's going to help you? Nobody likes carrying heavy things up and down stairs and around corners and through tight doorways. But a true friend will be there, even if you don't offer them pizza. If we want to experience a deeper friendship with Jesus, we need to learn to obey him. Pastor and author, author Mark Sawyers says, our holiness, so living a life of obedience to God, following his commands, our holiness is like putting on a welcome mat for the presence of God. Sin separates us from God, so if we continue to sin without any desire to change, we can't expect to experience God. And if you're struggling with sin, I encourage you to ask God for help in prayer and bring in some trusted people around you to help keep you accountable. And then fourthly, and maybe this one's a little different, if we want to cultivate a friendship with Jesus, do something that gives you life and consciously bring Jesus into that. A couple of years ago in summer, I was at Osoyoos Lake, and one evening around 10 p.m., the night was totally calm. Normally, there was a pretty strong breeze blowing through the lake, but this night there was nothing. It was completely calm. The stars were out, so I grabbed my paddleboard, and I paddled out onto the lake. The lake was completely flat like a black mirror. My board didn't make a sound as it glided over the water. It was a surreal experience. In some ways it didn't feel real, but in some ways it felt even more real. And in the silence, my heart became awakened to the presence of Jesus. I can't fully explain it. He just felt close and it was as if he was saying, this moment is for you. He was drawing me to himself with this amazing experience and it drew me into gratitude and into worship. So do something fun. Take Jesus with you. Author Mark Buchanan in his book on Sabbath, The Rest of God, suggests that a good Sabbath is both praying and playing. So those are some thoughts on love and friendship from the beloved disciple. Now I want to move on to glory. I want to suggest that friendship with Jesus will lead to encounters of the glory of God. It is so wild to think that God is our friend, that he's personal and involved in the small details of our individual lives, and yet he is unmatched in power and might and glory and majesty. Nothing can come close to his greatness. What is glory? Well, literally translated, it means weight or significance. There's a heaviness to it. But it's also something that draws you in and it makes your jaw drop. Perhaps sometimes we'd say glorious day in a sunset or a mountain vista or the northern lights or maybe holding a newborn baby or seeing people come alive in their faith taking steps of obedience. Glory is something greater and beyond what our human language can explain or articulate. Us modern people often think about glory through sport. That overtime goal was glorious. If you're a soccer fan, there is no greater glory than winning the World Cup. And recently, last year, Messi, arguably one of the best players to take the pitch, some say he's the greatest of all time, finally won the World Cup at the end of his career last year, one of the only trophies that was eluding him. It was a glorious moment. The whole country of Argentina wildly celebrating for days at their momentous victory led by their country's captain, Lionel Messi. But what about God's glory? In the Old Testament, God's glory usually manifested with clouds of smoke, thunder, earthquake, fire. Anyone who experienced the weight of God's glory usually fell flat on their face, the weight of God's presence making it too difficult to stay standing. 
at Mount Sinai, the people of God asked Moses to speak for God because when God spoke out of the cloud, they were worried they would die before his glorious presence and power. But in the person of Jesus, God's glory shifts in new ways. John chapter 1, 14 says, The word Jesus Christ became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus makes the glory of God known and personal and approachable. Listen to what Jesus prays for those who would follow him after his life, death, and resurrection. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus is praying that we would be with him, friendship, and that we would see his glory. And now John got to experience the glory of God through Jesus all the time. As I mentioned earlier, there were miracles he was eyewitness to, but there were a few occasions in John's life where he saw the the glory of Jesus in a particular mighty way. The first one is Jesus' transfiguration. So I'm going to look at this from Luke chapter 9. But as I read this, I want you to imagine that you are standing beside John in this place. If it helps you to close your eyes, you can go ahead and do that. But this is the transfiguration from Luke chapter 9. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men men were leaving leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. I'd love to have been there and seen and heard that. In a moment, Jesus is transformed before their eyes. The disciples get a glimpse of the full glory of Christ. Now they know Jesus is the Son of God and the embodiment of God's glory. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And we see it in this moment. It's been said that a science teacher never tires of a child taking their first look into a microscope. What had once been too small to be anything but a boring speck suddenly becomes colorful with patterns and lots of detail. Once a child looks at a microscope, they can never look at the world the same way again. Everything now has more potential than meets the eye. And it is the same for Peter, James, and John and anyone else who sees the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And here Jesus stands with Moses and Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah encountered the glory of God on top of a mountain. Now Jesus' disciples do too. And with Moses and Elijah there, the symbolism is that Jesus will now fulfill the law represented by Moses and he'll fulfill the prophets represented by Elijah by finishing his work on earth. And while they're there, Jesus has a little coffee meeting with them about his departure. In the original language, the word is exodus. 
I, want, I understand this to have a twofold meaning. First, that Jesus' exodus is his own death. And second, that Jesus' death will enact a new exodus. In the Old Testament, the first exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. In the new exodus, Jesus will lead God's people out of slavery to sin and death and home to the promised inheritance of the new creation, a redeemed world without evil and death. And that leads us to our next encounter of Jesus' glory, which is his death on the cross. The Gospel of John is the only one to mention that a disciple is present at the cross. John 19, 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple and, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son, and to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into her home. The disciple standing by is John the Beloved. All the other disciples fled, scared for their lives. So how is John, a known disciple of Jesus, able to stand there with Jewish and Roman authorities nearby without getting arrested? It is likely that John is still a minor. He was not yet a man. And therefore, to them, he wasn't a threat. And with John there, Jesus asked him to take in his mother, a widow in need of care. Jesus, in his death, taking care of of the vulnerable. But how is this glorious? Because there is nothing glorious about dying on a cross. But John gives us some clues through his gospel. In John chapter 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, the, said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The hour is Jesus being lifted up on the cross, and Jesus links it to glorifying the name of the Father. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, friendship with Jesus, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And what are Jesus' final words on the cross? It is finished. Jesus' work of bringing salvation to humanity, the gift of eternal life is opened up through his death. The good shepherd lays down his life to save the sheep. The glory of God in Jesus' death is of sacrificial love poured out for the good of humanity. And John is standing there as an eyewitness to the cross. Glorious. And John is also an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. And John spends the rest of his life living on mission for the glory of God. John becomes a messenger, inviting people into a friendship with Jesus and inviting them to experience the glory and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I suggest a threefold encyclical process here from the life of John. Friendship with Jesus 
leads us to being on mission with Jesus, which leads us to seeing the glory of Jesus, and vice versa, and back and forth. Our walk with Jesus is meant to be dynamic and growing. So the question for us, or for you, is, how is your friendship with Jesus? And how are you, or how have you, experienced the glory of God? Because my thinking here, this can work backwards too. If we've not had an experience of the glory of God, we are unmotivated to work on our friendship with God, which also would take away passion we have to be on mission for God. I was reading a devotional a few weeks ago by A.W. Tozer. He's famous for the quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Therefore, if we don't see God as the most glorious being in the universe, our motivation for friendship and to live with him will diminish. I was reading his devotional, Tozer, on the knowledge of the holy. There was a line that jumped down at me and I, I just continued to ponder with it and it says this, the glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. The glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. This was written in 1961. And the context for him writing this is that we had been taking Jesus for granted for 50 years. So, in the last 60 years, has this changed? Because Tozer's thinking is, if we experience God's glory, the fire and passion in our hearts for Jesus will be ignited and there will be a mighty move of the, God, of the Spirit of God. And oh, how North Vancouver needs a move of the Spirit of God. Amen? We as a church, we need a move of God's Spirit. And so church, this weekend marks the start of a new season, new rhythms, new dreams, new schedules. Might I suggest, might I urge that in all earnest you pursue the glory of God this fall. May our hearts cry be what Moses asked for in Exodus 33. In this passage, Moses is talking to God after the blunder of his people worshipped an idol. Moses cries out for two things. Two things that John also got to experience in profound ways. Moses said to God, if you don't go with us personally, don't let us move a step from this place. If you don't go with us, how will anyone know that your people have found favor with you? How else will they know we are special and distinct from all other people on earth? And the Lord replied, I will indeed do what you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and you are my friend." Then Moses requests one more thing. Please, let me see your glorious presence. Let me see your glorious presence. God, don't just let me get a glimpse. I don't just want to hear your voice. I want to see you, God, for who you truly are. People of North Shore Alliance Church, let this be our heart's cry. God, we're not moving unless you move with us. And God, let us see you in all your glory and splendor. God, we're tired of half-heartedly pursuing you. Let us see your glory and let us love you with our whole being. Amen? John grew up with some knowledge of Jesus. He was called by Jesus. He walked with Jesus, became Jesus' closest friend. He witnessed Jesus' glory, and he lived his life on mission to share this message. As a disciple, John didn't always get it right. He wanted to call down fire on people who didn't like Jesus, and maybe if we're honest from time to time, we have the same thoughts. John also tried to weasel his way up the discipleship ladder, wanting to sit at the right hand of Jesus in the kingdom. 
John didn't have everything figured out, and neither do we, and that's okay, because we have a God who does. What John did have was the love and the affection of Jesus, and we can have that too. When we're secure in our relationship with Jesus, we know who we are. We're sons and daughters of the King. We've been adopted by the Creator, and we belong in a community of people, the church, And we know what our purpose is, to love God with everything we've got and to sacrificially love those around us. Let me pray for us. I invite the musicians to come on the platform. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your glory and your splendor. And Jesus, we pray that we would see it in a new and special way this morning and as we move into this fall. God, we pray that our friendship with you would grow. God, we pray that our spiritual friendships would grow. We pray for our families, that we would be able to come before you together. God, we pray that you would move with us as a church as we jump into new ministries. God, move in our ministries. God, as we go from this place to our friends, to our families, to work, to school, God, move with us and let us shine the light of Jesus everywhere we go. In your holy name I pray, amen. If you would like prayer at this moment, Janice and Val will be in the corner willing to pray for you. Uh, I encourage you to do that.